Why are the people starving? Because the rulers eat up the money in taxes. Therefore, the people are starving. Why are the people rebellious? Because the rulers interfere too much. Therefore, they are rebellious. Why do people think so little of death? Because the rulers demand too much of life. Therefore, the people take death lightly. Having little to live on, one knows better than to value life too much. From the Tao Te Ching, Chapter 75 Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Baked and Awake podcast. Early August now, a few days since our last episode and part one of an intro to a very interesting period of history, the 17th century, that is to say the 1600s. particularly in the light of the characterization of that century known as the General Crisis. If you're unfamiliar with what I'm referring to right now, I welcome you to the podcast and I urge you to go ahead and hit pause on this episode, on this recording, roll back one episode, listen to part one. We're about halfway through the reading of a document that's an overview of this period in history written by Jeffrey Parker, a noted historian on this topic. So without really spending a lot of other time getting into it uh, today, I once again welcome you all. I hope if you're not safe yet, you're getting ready to get safe with me. I'm going to start things off real mellow with a little joint left over from the festivities last night after the the post-race party at the famous Seattle-Washington Dead Baby Downhill Annual Downhill City Freak Bike Race that I'm happy to say I participated in with both my sons and my lovely wife who uh, so kindly drove shuttle for us, dropped us off the top, uh, and I, for those of you who are familiar with the dead baby, probably would consider this highly questionable and borderline massively irresponsible, but my seven-year-old son rode the race in its entirety, top to bottom, on his own bike, and I towed our three-and-a-half-year-old son, Royce, behind me in a baby trailer on my vintage Schwinn Sierra mountain bike, and it was glorious. Uh, Kenny only got ran over once on the way down the hill, uh, somewhere around Westlake in downtown Seattle, while we were stopping traffic and running lights all the way across town, and uh, did just fine. He was run over by another cyclist briefly, and they picked up his bike for him, and I picked him up for himself, and we grabbed a gear for him on his little multi-speed bike and sent him back off as quick as he fell. He had the best time ever. 
So uh, anyway, I rolled up a couple of uh, joints for the evening, and uh, now I'm enjoying the last one of them together with you while we jump back into Jeffrey Parker's overview of the general crisis of the 17th century. We finished off last episode with a assessment of the Jiangnan province in China during this period, uh, looking back on it in 1717. And the uh, commentary at that time was, quote, the climate has changed. They continued to point out, they have also heard that in Fujian, where it never used to snow, since the beginning of our dynasty, it has. Let's light this joint and jump into the continuation of this excellent document that provides such a window into the time through the writings and um, quotations from very well-known and seemingly pretty solid, like authoritative sources from the time. Noted academics, monarchs in state at the time, etc. Let's make sure we're looking good on our recording levels. I feel like last episode the the sound quality was all right, but the volume wasn't where I wanted it to be even after post and editing. So, give me your feedback on, you know, can you hear me in the car? Can you hear me over background, excuse me, background noise? Uh is it is it the kind of podcast that you have to listen to on headphones in order to get, you know, full audio? I'm hearing a variation in in volume myself from very small changes in head position and and uh you know this may be my mixer showing its age or something like that um you know it's a pretty basic mixer so i'm not sure but everything looks cool right now let's roll with it a generation later the french intellectual voltaire made the first systematic attempt to see the rebellions wars, and natural catastrophes of the preceding century as a global phenomenon arising in part from climate change. Climate change. In the 1740s, he composed a lengthy essay on the customs and character of nations for his friend Madame du Châtelet, who was bored stiff by the past. Because of the mid-17th century, presented his reluctant reader with special problems of ennui, Voltaire decided to render the apparent anarchy intelligible by setting individual episodes within a global framework. Quote, a period of usurpations, almost from one end of the world to the other. That included Oliver Cromwell in Europe, Aurangzeb in India, and Li Zhisheng in China. No doubt fearing that his 800-page meta-narrative might exhaust Madame du Châtelet, Voltaire ended his essay in telegraphic style. 
three things exercise a constant influence over the minds of men. Climate, government, and religion. Only this trinity, he asserted, could explain the enigma of this world. Again, we will be skipping footnotes. This document was actually added as a downloadable PDF to the last episode of the podcast. I will attach it again uh, and make it available for download with either episode. The way to get at that is visit the website itself at www.bakedandawake.com. Scroll down, find the episode in the feed there. Click through to it on my podcast page where working attachments like that are available to click and cleanly pull down to your desktop if you want to read this yourself. You can, you can find it on the web just as easily as I did also. With documents like this, I like to grab them and move them over to my Google Drive. It's probably an illusory sense of having them. It's a fake library virtual archive that I've got there, but, um, you know, it'll be the the last thing I reach for in an apocalyptic scenario because that's not going to be there for me when I need it then. Um, but for now, while we're making a podcast, uh, you could easily probably check in with me on anything you listened to me talk about, and if I mentioned a doc and you can't find it for some reason, I may have it. Uh, you can email me at talk to us at bakedandawake.com. To continue. So far, all historians of the general crisis have included government and religion in their analyses, but few have considered the impact of the climate. Even the pioneering 1967 study, Times of Feast, Times of Famine, a history of climate science since the year 1000 by Emmanuel Leroy Ladurie, a historian of early modern Europe, concluded that in the present state of our knowledge, it still seems as if the long crisis, hypothetical or real, of the 17th century had some other explanation than climate change. Ladurie continued, It would be quite absurd to try and explain the Fronde by the adverse meteorological conditions of the 1640s. Accordingly, instead of writing a study of the impact of climate fluctuations on European history as he had intended, Leroy Ladurie made a modest attempt to establish an accurate chronology of those fluctuations. In 1967, such pessimism was justified. But over the past 40 years, an avalanche of new data has transformed our knowledge of early modern weather, and thus the links between climate change, climate, and catastrophe. The data fall into two distinct categories. A human archive, and quote, a natural archive. The former consists of four main types of records. Narrative, that is information contained in written texts, 
chronicles and histories, letters and diaries, judicial and government records, newspapers and broadsheets, what's a broadsheet, and oral traditions. Next would be numerical information compiled from documentary proxy data, such as the changing date on which the harvesting of certain crops began each year, or the annual volume harvested, or occasionally from narrative reports. Quote, rain fell for the first time in 42 days. Next up, pictorial information contained in dated visual representations of natural phenomena, paintings that show the position of a glacier's tongue in a given year, or that depict ice flows in a harbor during a winter of unusual severity. Finally, epigraphic or archaeological information such as inscriptions on structures that date flood levels, or excavations of settlements abandoned because of climate change. I like that. That puts a good size on, you know, what we're looking at as archaeologists or historians to establish what was going on back then. Next, it, they summarize, the size of this human archive for the mid-17th century is overwhelming. Yeah, the sense we've gotten this whole time, right, is that they've got a lot of really good records about this time for the most part compared to other parts of history. Still, do we have everything? Not by a long shot, right? But in Sicily, more than a dozen contemporaries recorded in detail the progress of the drought and famine that sparked revolt in most of the island's towns in 1647. While in Ireland, judges took sworn depositions from some 2,600 Protestant men and 600 women, filling almost 20,000 pages with the things seen, heard, and suffered in 1641, when following three failed harvests, large numbers of Catholics, forgive me, raped, robbed, killed, and humiliated their Protestant neighbors. In China, a scholar who set out in the 1600s to reconstruct the misery of the recent transition from Ming to Qing in Jiangnan, found almost 70 local histories to consult. No previous period boasts such a wealth of eyewitness evidence for historical investigation. But there is more. As if a, a Ron Popeil infomercial. Wait, there's more. A, quote, natural archive provides abundant complementary material on long-term trends. Here, too, four types of record possess special relevance for the period before scientific instruments became available to track climate change. Ice cores. We always hear about these legendary ice cores, right? The annual deposits on ice caps and glaciers around the world captured in deep boreholes provide evidence of changing levels of volcanic emissions, precipitation, air temperature, 
and atmospheric composition. Cool. Glaciology. The alternating advance and retreat of glaciers together with an analysis of the debris left behind. Sheds light on both precipitation and ablation. Ablation. Steve might have to look up ablation. Palynology. Changes in pollen and spores deposited in lakes, bogs, and estuaries reflect the natural vegetation at the time of a pollen deposit. Sure, sounds great. Dendrochronology. Oh, this is a good one. The varying size of growth rings laid down by trees during each growing season reflects local conditions in the spring and summer. A thick ring corresponds to a year favorable to growth, while a narrow ring indicates a year of adversity. Combining the two archives, so I love how dendrochronology just definitely requires cutting down a tree to find out. <laughs> but hey, what are you going to do? Hopefully they're like hairs on, on a body, right? Combining the two archives has enabled climatologists to recreate detailed weather maps for Western Europe back to 1659 by month and back to 1500 by season. In 1999, the journal Climactic Change devoted an entire issue to European weather during the 16th century which was later published in book form. Sounds like one to get a hold of. 1999, so that'd be pretty modern interpretation on it, for the most part, comparatively. Although still, you know, 20 years old now. Since then, articles in the International Journal of Climatology and elsewhere have offered a detailed reconstruction of both the European climate between 1675 and 1715, and the entire global climate for certain decades of the early modern period. Unfortunately, no similar survey has yet appeared for the 1640s, the decade at the center of the general crisis, but the natural and human archives are both abundant, and they reveal both extreme cold and prolonged drought around the globe. In America, New England's colonists experienced the second coldest winter in a century, in 1641 to 1642. John Winthrop governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, noted in his journal that, quote, the frost was so great and continual this winter that all the bay was frozen over. So much and so long as the like, by the Indians' relation, had not been so these forty years. Oh, how they phrased things back then. To the southward also, the frost was as great and the snow as deep, and at Virginia itself, the great bay, Chesapeake Bay, was much of it frozen over, and all of their great rivers. Sir Ferdinando Georges, 
settlers on the coast of Maine likewise complained of, quote, the most intolerable piercing weather, adding, it is incredible to relate the extremity of the weather. East Asia also experienced abnormal cold. In Japan, when Inomoto Yazemon, a merchant and minor official living just north of Tokyo, wrote in his memoirs, he remembered the unique conditions on New Year's Day 1641 when ice lay in the fields one foot deep. From that time I observed seven snowfalls until the spring. The following November, Tokyo was once again covered with snow. Only two other years since then have seen snowfalls so early. A reconstruction of annual temperatures in China since 1370 likewise shows the lowest point ever in the mid-17th century. See figure 4. They had a chart up above. A chronicler in Shanghai writing in April 1642 recorded that, quote, since the new year, January 31st in this case, it has been cold and has rained frequently. The spring has almost come to an end, but the cold still persists. Europe, too, experienced winters of extreme severity. From Scandinavia, which suffered the coldest winter ever recorded in 1641 to 1642, to Macedonia, where in that same year there was so much rain and snow, quote, that many workers died through the great cold. In the Alps, fields, farmsteads, and even whole villages disappeared as glaciers advanced to their maximum extent between 1640 and 1644. Summers, as well as winters, were unusually cold in those years. In eastern France, cool summers delayed every grape harvest between 1640 and 1643 by a full month and reduced harvest yields. Hungary experienced a run of unusually wet and cold summers in the 1640s, while in Bohemia, frosts in late May and early September, and occasionally also in summer, ruined several harvests. Perhaps most striking of all, a soldier serving in central Germany recorded in his diary in August 1640 that, at this time, there was such a great cold that we almost froze to death in our quarters. On the road, three people did freeze to death, a cavalryman, a woman, and a boy. In the Northern Hemisphere as a whole, 1641 was the third coldest summer recorded over the past six centuries. 1643 was the tenth coldest, and 1642 was the 28th coldest. Three landmark winters in a row. Doesn't say <laughs> the 28th coldest. I mean, it's like, okay, it sounds probably cold, I guess. But I'm sure it was very cold. <laughs> Maybe we're only having like the 433rd coldest winter, you know, at, at a time right now, for all I know. 
These extremes have led historians and climatologists alike to speak of the period as, quote, the Little Ice Age. The 1640s also saw prolonged drought in many areas. The western United States lacked rain in 1640 through 1644, which, combined with unusually low temperatures, significantly stunted the growth of the plants. How much western United States was existent in 1640 to 1644? Was that post-Louisiana purchase, perhaps? I don't, th- I don't know that it was. It wasn't. It wasn't. So, we're talking Appalachia, probably, at that time? I don't even know. No rain fell in the Valley of Mexico between spring and mid-October 1641. And a shortage of rain the following summer raised the price of maize, the stable crop, to famine levels. In both years, the clergy of Mexico City took the Virgen de los Remedios on procession to solicit God's intervention before everyone died. Sounds like some sort of parade of virgins. <laughs> like, what the heck? Wow, guys. Across the Pacific, according to a 1642 pamphlet, the entire Philippines suffered from a great drought that prevails, for there has been no rain for eight months, which occasions excessive heat, and the rice, the usual food in this country, cannot be sown and a great famine is feared. Between 1643 and 1671, the Indonesian archipelago experienced the longest drought recorded during the past four centuries. In 1640, northern China experienced the single driest year recorded during the last five centuries, while in 1641, central China experienced its second driest year in two centuries, with a drought so severe in Shandong province that the Grand Canal dried up for the only time on record. In Egypt, the Nile fell to some of its lowest recorded levels between 1640 and 1643. Much of West Africa suffered droughts of great intensity in 1639 to 1643, and a prolonged drought reduced Lake Chad to the lowest level ever recorded. In Europe, finally, Catalonia experienced a drought in spring 1640, so intense that the authorities declared a special holiday so that the entire population could make a pilgrimage to a local shrine to pray for water. One of only four such occasions recorded in five centuries. One day in May 1641 in Madrid, the entire central government received an order to stop work and joined the royal family in a procession that followed the body of the capital's patron saint, St. Isidro, around the streets to pray for rain. So we know now that the general crisis coincided with a major anomaly in the world's climatic history. But what caused that anomaly? Responsibility rests with two natural phenomena that began in the mid-17th century and persisted until the early 18th century when the global climate changed again 
and became more benign. First, solar activity reached the lowest level in two millennia. Fewer sunspots, those dark, cooler patches on the solar surface surrounded by flares that make the sun shine with greater intensity, appeared in 16, between 1645 and 1750, then in a single year of the 20th century. So that's interesting. Sunspots and solar flares are like pairs. I, I can feel that, right? Yin and yang, positive and negative. Um, so we have more sunspots and sun flares these days. Whereas more than 100,000 sunspots now come and go in a 60-year period, the last six decades of the 17th century saw scarcely 100. Interesting. And we know that from the 17th century? Who was sitting up 24-7 mapping all the sunspots and sun flares? And... Am I stupid for asking that kind of question? Is that, like, is that ignorant? Nowhere in the list above about the natural record did they tell me how they were measuring sunspots in the 1600s. Okay, we'll take their word for it. Other observations by astronomers of the time confirm a striking production, striking reduction in solar energy. The aurora borealis, the northern lights caused when charged particles from the sun interact with the Earth's magnetic field, became rare for two generations after 1640. So rare that when Edmund Halley, England's astronomer royal, saw an aurora in 1716, he wrote a learned paper describing the phenomenon because it was the first time he had seen one in almost 50 years of observation. Likewise, the brilliant corona nowadays visible during every total solar eclipse also disappeared. Descriptions by astronomers between the 1640s and the 1700s mention only a pale ring of dull light reddish and narrow, around the moon. The energy of the sun appears to have diminished, a condition normally associated with reduced surface temperatures and extreme climatic events on Earth. Simultaneously, contemporaries regularly reported, quote, dust veils in the skies above the northern hemisphere, that made the sun seem paler or redder than usual. What? I say, what? You got, I'm looking right out the side of my eyeballs at this screen right now, you guys. I don't even want to get into it. We're not going to speculate. We, we can talk about that in follow-ups to this, but wow. During the first six months of 1651, a Barcelona shopkeeper lamented that, among our misfortunes, I think the greatest was that the sun did not shine once, and if it came out, it was pale and yellow, or else much too red, which caused great fear. 
thousands of miles to the east. Korea's royal astronomers reported on numerous occasions in the 17th century that, quote, the skies all around are darkened and gray, as if some kind of dust had fallen. Both the dust and the reddened skies stemmed from a spate of major volcanic eruptions, each hurling sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere, where it deflected some of the sun's radiation back into space, and thus significantly reduced temperatures in all areas of the Earth beneath the dust clouds. In particular, 12 major volcanic eruptions occurred around the Pacific between 1638 and 1644, apparently an all-time record, so it's the volcanoes, you guys, these guys are to blame, and all of them occurred, uh, chart, 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 by the way, in this doc, all those occurred around the equator, so the, their dust veils reduced the solar energy received by the most densely populated areas of the planet. Reduced solar energy received on Earth, whether due to fewer sunspots, more volcanic activity, or both, not only lowers the global temperature, it also changes the climate. In normal summers, a column of rising heat over Central Asia attracts the monsoon system, which means that easterly winds blowing from equatorial America bring heavy rains to East and Southeast Asia. By contrast, reduced solar energy means that the snow lingers in Central Asia, reflecting the sun's heat instead of absorbing and radiating it as darkland surfaces do. Without the column of rising heat, Westerly winds blowing from equatorial Asia to America take the monsoon rains eastward, a phenomenon called El Nino, or properly Enso, El Nino Southern Oscillation, slash Southern Oscillation, okay. This shift dramatically affects the world's climate. Whereas in normal years, heavy rains nurture the harvests of South and East Asia, in El Nino years, they bring floods to Central and South America instead and create drought in Asia and Australasia. The global footprint left by El Nino, El Nino also includes three other regions. The Caribbean almost always suffers floods. Ethiopia and northwest India usually experience droughts, and Europe frequently experiences harsh winters. On average, these disruptive El Nino episodes occur only once every five years, but in the mid-17th century, they happened twice as often, in 1640, 41, 47, 1650, 52, 55, and 61. Each time the regions normally affected all experienced abnormal weather. Besides increasing the frequency of El Nino episodes, 
reduced solar energy affects the global climate in two other significant ways. First, mean temperatures decline far more in the northern hemisphere, in parentheses home to the majority of humankind and the site of most mid-17th century revolts, wars, and mortality, than at the equator in part because increased snow cover and sea ice reflect more of the sun's rays back into space. Thus, any significant extension of the polar ice caps and glaciers, both of which occurred in the mid-17th century, further reduces temperatures in northerly latitudes. Second, any fall in overall temperature triggers extreme climatic events. To pluck three notable mid 17th century examples. In the winter of 1620 to 1621, the Bosporus froze over so hard that people could cross on foot between Europe and Asia. In 1630, torrential rains in Arabia and Western Asia, which an Ottoman chronicler compared with the times of Noah, caused floods so severe that they destroyed two walls of the Kaaba in Mecca, a place that normally sees little rain, and caused the Tigris and Euphrates to overflow and floods to cover the whole Baghdad plateau. Finally, in the Baltic, where Sweden and Denmark were at war, an extraordinary violent frost early in 1658 increased to such a degree that the little belt which divides Jutland from the Isle of Funen was so intensely frozen as suggested to the Swedish king an enterprise full of hazard but not disagreeable to a fearless mind edged with ambition of marching over the ice into Funen with horse, foot, and cannon. The astonished Danish defenders made large cuts in the ice, which were soon congealed again. Because of the extreme cold, each of the extreme climatic events remained unparalleled. Each occurred in the Little Ice Age. How precisely can historians link the harsh winters, cool summers, droughts, and floods of the 1640s. To say nothing of the sunspot minimum, the volcanic maximum, and the more frequent El Ninos, with individual cases of state breakdowns, such as the revolts of Scotland, Ireland, and England against Charles I, or the collapse of Ming rule in China. We must not paint bullseyes around bullet holes and argue that since climatic aberrations seem to be the only factor capable of causing simultaneous upheavals around the globe, therefore those aberrations, quote, must have caused the upheavals. In several cases, however, the human and natural climatic archives show exactly how extreme weather anomalies triggered 
or fatally exacerbated major political upheavals. Thus, much of southern Portugal rebelled in 1637, when drought forced the price of bread to unprecedented heights. Popular revolts spread throughout Catalonia in spring 1640, as prolonged drought threatened catastrophic harvest failure. And the first urban riots of the Tokugawa era occurred in 1642, when rice ran short in Osaka, the kitchen of Japan. Three disastrous harvests preceded the Irish Rebellion in 1641. The catastrophic harvests of 1647 and 1648 helped to precipitate the major revolts in Sicily, Central Italy, Poland, and Russia. While the harvest of 1650 was the worst in the country in the century in Sweden, creating the backdrop for near revolution when the estates of the kingdom met in Stockholm. Scotland offers an excellent example of the role of climate in producing catastrophe. King Charles I made no secret of his desire to create one uniform course of government in and through our whole monarchy and to impose a single, quote, form of public worship, so that, as it has but one lord and one faith, so it has but one heart and one mouth. And the churches that are under the protection of one sovereign prince. Okay, Charles. In Scotland, this process gathered momentum in 1634, when Charles ordered the bishops to prepare a new prayer book based on the one used in England. Haggling over minor details between the king, his Archbishop of Canterbury, William Laud, and the Scottish bishops delayed production for three years. So that, when in June 1637, the Scottish Privy Council decreed the compulsory and exclusive use of the new prayer book on pain of outlawry, the kingdom faced not only a scarcity of victuals and a scarcity and want of monies, but also a plague epidemic. In addition, it faced a severe, if not unprecedented, drought. According to the Earl of Lothian, one of Scotland's worried landowners, quote, the earth has been iron in this land, and the heavens brass this summer. Till now, in the harvest, there have been such inundations of floods and winds as no man living remembers the like. This has shaken and rotted and carried away the little corn that had came up. His lordship did not exaggerate. Scotland's natural archive reveals that 1637 was the driest year in two decades. Indeed, the kingdom experienced the worst recorded drought in a millennium from 1636 until 1649. Dang. When food of all sorts became so scarce that, quote, the like had never been seen in the kingdom before heretofore, since it was a nation. 
small wonder then that Charles I's innovations, coming at a time of acute climate-induced adversity, should produce popular riots and lead landowners such as the Earl of Lothian to join the covenanting revolt, revolt, and raise an army to secure guarantees that the king would respect their political and religious autonomy. Likewise, a decade of cold, wet summers, ruining one harvest after another, explains the eagerness of the Scots to appropriate England's resources throughout the 1640s, billeting as many of their troops as possible south of the border and extracting a huge ransom before they agreed to withdraw. Despite the knowledge, their perceived rapacity discredited and alienated their English supporters. Many Covenanters felt that unless they exploited their assets in England to the hilt, Scotland would starve. The Scottish Revolution thus offers a perfect vindication of Voltaire's thesis that rebellions arose during the mid-17th century through a fatal synergy between government, religion, and climate. Charles's insistence on creating one uniform course of government in and through our whole monarchy, especially in matters of religion, coupled with the Little Ice Age, led to state collapse. He goes on, and, and obviously you can tell he's wrapping it up. This is his summation. This is what we've been working up to, right? What does Parker really think after looking at this for forever? But climate cannot explain everything. We must not become climatic determinists. Three other factors, all of them related to human agency, also shaped the general crisis in Scotland and elsewhere. Contingency, imitation, and intransigence. Intransigence. What a word. This should be interesting. The crucial role played by contingency in italics is best illustrated by the rioting that attended the first use of Charles I's new prayer book in Edinburgh's St. Gilles Cathedral on July 23, 1637, thereby starting the Scottish Revolution. Despite the presence of the king's judges and the city magistrates, as soon as the dean began to read the new set prayers, a group of maidservants sitting at the front with clapping of their hands, cursing, and outcries, raised such a barbarous hubbub in that sacred place that not anyone could either hear or be heard. One of them also hurled her small folding stool. None of this was coincidence. Rumors that Charles planned major religious innovations had circulated for several months, but the defenders of the traditional ways lacked irrefutable evidence until, in a classic case of Scottish parsimony, the government printer decided to sell the corrected proofs of the new liturgy as scrap paper, and individual sheets of it appeared in the shops of Edinburgh to cover spice and tobacco. 
Wow. Only this convinced a group of godly aristocrats that Charles did indeed plan to change the established form of worship. And they now laid plans for their maidservants to start a riot whenever the new prayer book was first used. These were the women who raised the, quote, barbarous hubbub in St. Giles Cathedral on July 23, 1637, despite the presence of judges and magistrates. Infamy. The Scottish Revolution also exemplifies the important role of imitation in sparking rebellion. Yeah, let's hear this one. As early as 1638, an Anglican bishop in Ireland complained about the desperate example of the contumacious nonconformists, a.k.a. the Scottish Covenanters, have given both to England and to Ireland, and lamented that, quote, this contagion had already begun to spread to Ulster. Shortly afterward, the Scots distributed thousands of copies of pamphlets that justified their actions to the English in what David Como has hailed as among the most systematic and concerted campaigns hitherto attempted by a foreign power to bombard a separate kingdom with propaganda, thereby using the printed word to manipulate political opinion and fundamentally to alter the political process of another nation. Great footnotes throughout this doc that point straight at their sources so a person could really go nuts on this if they wanted to and pick it apart for any of the claims that he comes up with based out of his sources here. In 1645, as James Howell wondered upon whom to lay the blame for the outbreak of civil war in England, he singled out the rebellion of the Irish Catholics as, quote, the womb of our miseries. But, he added, <laughs> and as they point out, wallowing in mixed metaphors, they have administered fuel enough and too much to this fire, but it was first kindled in Scotland. The Puritans there were the womb of it. Though I must tell you withal, the loins that begot this centaur were the Puritans here in England. If the flint and steel had not struck fire in England, the tinder would had never took fire in Scotland, nor had the flame ever gone over into Ireland to increase the fire. Many contemporaries, less addicted to metaphor, agreed that, quote, the example of Scotland had played a crucial role in the genesis of the Irish Rebellion. The Earl of Castlehaven recalled in his memoirs how his Irish Catholic colleagues saw the Scots by pretending grievances and taking up arms to get them redressed had not only gained divers privileges and immunities, but got 300,000 pounds for their visit besides 850 pounds a day for several months together. According to one of the leading conspirators, the Covenanter's success convinced the Irish malcontents that only military strength could end, quote, the tyrannical government that was over them. And they therefore resolved to imitate Scotland, who got a privilege by that course. 
The Scots had their wills by force of arms, another conspirator observed that his words, not mine. And so would they here in this kingdom. Why? Another of the insurgents asked his Protestant prisoner rhetorically. May we not as well and better fight for religion, which is the substance, than the Scots did for ceremonies, which are but shadows. Most revealing of all, when another Protestant prisoner asked his Irish captor, What? Have you made a covenant among you as the Scots did? He received the crushing reply. The Scots have taught us our A-B-C. Okay, fine. So they're saying this, the Irish copied the Scots. I don't know if that's news or even if it's so accurate as it was inevitable. But cool. Finally, and here we go with that great word, intransigence often provoked and prolonged the tension between rulers and ruled during the general crisis. Okay, tension between the rulers and ruled. Yeah, yeah, all right, intransigence on, on the case of the rulers, right? Thus, in 1638, Charles I determined to use force against his critics in Scotland because, quote, not only now my crown, but my reputation forever lies at the stake. And so he vowed that, quote, I would rather die than yield to those impertinent and damnable demands. Three weeks later, he exclaimed that, quote, by the heavenly God, so long as this covenant is in force, I have no more power in Scotland than as a Duke of Venice, which I will rather die than suffer. Charles adopted the same uncompromising attitude toward all groups of subjects whom he suspected of wanting to demote him to Duke of Venice. In 1642, he swore that no extremity of misfortune shall make me yield to rebels, quote, for I will either be a glorious king or a patient martyr. Repeated military defeats failed to shake the king's conviction that, quote, God will not suffer rebels and traitors to prosper or my cause to be overthrown. He, of course, believed he was a divine right king. A composition with them at this time is nothing else but a submission, which, by the grace of God, I am resolved against, whatever it cost me, for I know my obligation to be, both in conscience and honor, neither to abandon God's cause, injure my successors, or forsake my friends. An intransigent attitude that would, in 1649, turn him into a patient martyr. Despite the importance of these and other contingent factors, no convincing account of the general crisis can now ignore the impact of the unique climatic conditions that prevailed. Indeed, the wealth of data in both the human and natural archives encouraged Leroy Ladurie to write the comparative human history of climate that he abandoned 
1967 for lack of evidence. The first volume, which appeared in 2005, I guess he had took it back up. Yeah, he looked at it in 67, took it back up, published in 05, volume one. That's what it's looking like. The History of Climate, which has made considerable progress since the publication of Our History of the Climate since the year 1000, has now won full legitimacy. The days are gone when modish historians disparaged this new discipline with taunts such as, quote, bogus science. The time for such irreverent barbs is past, and this book seeks to provide a human history of climate dealing with the impact of climatic and meteorological fluctuations on societies, above all through the prism of famines, and in some cases, epidemics. In addition, the author boasted that he had produced a comparative history, following in the footsteps of Mark Bloch, who wanted to compare what is comparable We shall focus, inter alia, on the temperate zones of France, the north and the center. That will be at the foreground of our research, accompanied by constant or, depending on the evidence, frequent comparisons with England, Scotland, sometimes Ireland, Belgium, the Netherlands, Switzerland, Germany, not only Western, and when possible, Bohemia and Poland, sometimes the three Scandinavian countries, Finland or even Iceland. La Page, Petit Age Glaciaire, the Little Ice Age, okay. La Page, forms the backbone of Leroy Ladurie's new book, with special attention devoted to what he calls Le Hyperpage of the mid-17th century. He even included a whole chapter on L'Enigme de la Fronde that connected the climatic anomalies with political upheavals in France and England between 1648 and 1650, precisely the link he dismissed in 1967 as, quote, quite absurd. Despite the cachet conferred on climatic history, by Leroy Ladurie, one of the world's foremost living historians. His epiphany has as yet made little impression on in North America. In July 2008, although 50 libraries in North America boasted a copy of Volume 1, only one had a copy of Volume 2. Published in September 2006, and containing the tables and graphs that underpin Volume 1. Neither Amazon.com nor BarnesandNoble.com offered copies for sale, although the former advertised more than 100 of his works and the latter almost 30, and no North American journal has yet published a review. Okay, this is not me. This is Parker. This is his doc. These are his speculations or con curiosities. I... I I'm obviously eating it up. 
he continues, and this is the that this is like the end of the doc, everybody. Does this indifference simply reflect the unwillingness of Anglophone American academics to tackle large books written in foreign languages? Or does it also reveal a residual resistance to admitting that climate can exercise a decisive influence on human history? After all, denial is currently the commonest human reaction to environmental catastrophe. We know with absolute certainty that natural disasters have happened in the past and that they will continue to happen in the future. But we convince ourselves that they will not happen just yet, or at least not to us. The worsening droughts, desiccation, and desertification in equatorial Africa over the past 40 years have caused massive migrations, famines, and wars that resemble those of the mid-17th century. Yet the rest of the world does virtually nothing. In the West, even isolated extreme climatic events such as the European heat wave of 2003, which I don't really remember offhand, but they're saying here, claim the lives of at least 35,000 people. Wow. And Hurricane Katrina which ruined or rendered uninhabitable 300,000 homes in the southeastern United States, found the richest and most powerful governments in human history completely unprepared and incapable of taking appropriate action in time. Yet even these tragedies remained local. How would those same governments, how would we, cope with a global catastrophe like that of the 1640s. We have only two ways to anticipate the impact of a future catastrophic climate change. Neither of them particularly precise or entirely reliable. Either we fast forward the tape of history and predict what might happen on the basis of current trends, or we rewind the tape and learn from what happened during global catastrophes in the past. Although many experts, mainly climatologists, sociologists, and political scientists, have tried the former, few have systematically attempted the latter. Perhaps because only one previous global cataclysm, the one in the mid-17th century, has left sufficient records for detailed historical study. Taking advantage of the human and natural archives on climate to reopen the general crisis debate not only sheds new light on an old problem, but also offers a rare opportunity for historians to engage with scholars in other disciplines who are concerned with the fate of our planet. Studying causal mechanisms and coping strategies 350 years ago will not, of course, prevent the onset of further climatic catastrophes in the 21st century. But, if historians can identify the structural, political, economic, and ideological characteristics 
in each afflicted society around the world that prevented or facilitated an appropriate response during the general crisis. And consider how the outcomes could have been different. We may learn some valuable lessons for dealing with the climate challenges that undoubtedly await us and our children. So that's it, everybody. We made it through the whole doc. I want to I want to read their um, postscript and credit on on Jeffrey Parker because he's who you'll find probably speaking most authoritatively about this on YouTube and stuff because he's the guy who's written most of the books in the last couple uh, decades about this. But they have the the author's note here says Jeffrey Parker is a distinguished university professor and Andreas Dorpalin professor of history at the Ohio State University and an associate of its Mershon Center. His best-known book, The Military Revolution, Military Innovation, and the Rise of the West, 1500 to, 15 to 1800, excuse me, Cambridge University Press, 1988, uh, won the Best Book Award from the American Military Institute and the Dexter Prize from the Society for the History of Technology. The Grand Strategy of Philip II, Yale University Press, 1998, won the Samuel Elliott Morrison Prize from the Society of Military History. Parker has been a fellow of the British Academy since 1984, and in 1992, the King of Spain made him a Knight Grand Cross of the Order of Isabella the Catholic in recognition of his work on Spanish history. That's interesting. Some would find that very interesting indeed. Uh, so, yeah, 17th century, the 1600s, rich, rich uh, period of history. The, the, the late 1500s leading into the 1600s uh, has a lot going on as well. Maybe we'll look at that as the uh, prelude to the general crisis, and we'll look at the um, postscript to the general crisis perhaps in the next couple of uh, episodes. How fun would that be? And then we could... Uh, decide what was the most interesting things to look at and were there any that were worth returning to as like a spotlight deeper dive on I mean there's so much to pick from it would be very difficult uh, to decide what was going on it might be fun to look at North America and the colonies during this period and see what those histories were saying at that time, if we could find some detailed accounts. Uh, I don't want to say fun stuff, the general crisis, right? But, wow, what a period of history. I'm really glad to hear the initial feedback from folks, uh, from a couple of folks has been like, yeah, I hadn't really heard about this in this way before either. So, again, I know this isn't new stuff because Parker here, our boy has been talking about it for decades, and the historians who came up with the theory before that did it in the 60s. So, but here I am still learning about it in 2019, and I hope that I've introduced it as a concept to a couple of you who have come along and listened. All right, so we're over an hour. I'll edit out my ums and ahs and 
etc. as much as I can for you guys and trim it up, but we're still going to be over an hour when we're done. And before I let you go, I got to um, make one simple appeal that uh, is so important. So I was going to go live on YouTube this morning while recording this episode and just BS and, and leave it on in the background. Don't have a webcam on my desktop recording set up my computer here. It's an older, like, little square, whatever they call it, iMac or whatever. And I never hooked up a webcam to it. I don't have a webcam. I have a microphone hooked up to it. I have a mixer hooked up to it. No webcam. So I was going to use mobile. All of a sudden, YouTube pops me up a dialogue, says you're prohibited from using this feature. Uh, see the new minimum requirements for uh, this to learn more. So I click the button, and it tells me that my little channel that's been going for several, several years now, and that only has a few hundred subscribers, like 442 or so as of this morning, and thank you, everybody, for all the recent subscriptions. I mean, there have been so many new people in the last month or two. 445. Thanks, JJ. My good buddy JJ just subscribed uh, to the channel within the last hour because I just posted about this on Instagram. So uh, YouTube now has changed the requirements. They raised the threshold for mobile Live streaming, okay, a very popular method of going live. I mean, what what's more fun than being out in the field and hitting the live button and going live with your you know little audience there? Uh, can't do it anymore unless I have 1,000 subscribers. So I'm sitting pretty at 445. I feel really confident that we can get to 1,000 subscribers in the next few months uh, if I just harp on it uh, continuously. And, you know, maybe I'll have to think of some other ways of you know creating the level of engagement that I need to to get there but if you're hearing my words right now the couple of things I need from everybody that are free and easy to do please please subscribe to my channel on YouTube and then uh, pretty please if you haven't already and you do listen to the podcast in its normal podcast form uh, I haven't had a new review in like a year so I, I have like 40 reviews. They're all really positive for the most part. I super appreciate every one of them. But it supposedly helps the, the podcast greatly uh, to grow, to continue to get new and honest and real reviews. And to add to that stack, we've, we've been creating content continuously the whole time. Um, I haven't really taken any breaks. I might go up and down slightly in pace of release over the course of a month. Um, but I'm always shooting for around four episodes a month. Uh, I love you guys and appreciate all the support you've already shown me. I'm not going to sit here and, uh, you know, worry about T Public and and podcast merch or talking about Calypso CBD as much as I appreciate and love them. Uh, use checkout code Baked and Awake when you go there uh, to CalypsoCBD.com. That's the extent of that uh, promo. Uh, excuse me, knocking shit over. But yeah, guys, I need your help on YouTube for right now. we got to get to 1,000 subscribers so I can get that live streaming capability back because I'm generally going to do more of that in the future, and I am trying to do more with the YouTube channel all the time. I have some field trips planned. Uh, the podcast is always, you know, job one, but I love going out and doing little video. I'm not, I don't have high production value. I don't, I'm not editing a bunch of really cool effects and transitions and things and different, you know, points of view. It's a lot of vlog style first person or third person you know static camera angle but whatever dudes it's about the content right we're going out and visiting places in the field so uh help me get to a thousand okay uh and uh yeah that's about it get back to it um nick and derek love you guys both appreciate you guys both today uh especially so 
Uh, tell me what you guys thought about the general crisis, everyone, and let's look at what we're going to look at next together soon. Until then, any music you heard today during this episode was most definitely provided by the amazing Auntie Luode, who you can find in my show notes, and you can find him on Instagram as Auntie Batterel Luode, and I will put it all in the show notes, as I always do for you. You know what you need to do for me. Smoke some indica, do shit anyway. 